You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness and physiology right now. In this episode, Dr. Tony Nader and Dr. Michael Levin discuss the different aspects of information, communication, intelligence, and awareness of cells. We see that even on the cellular level, the cells not only react individually to inputs and information, but also there is a collective behavior, which is called collective intelligence. Together, Dr. Nader and Dr. Levin explore how collective consciousness presents itself on the cellular level and also in our day-to-day existence. Dr. Michael Levin is a distinguished professor in the biology department at Tufts University and serves as the director of the Allen Discovery Center. He holds a PhD in biology from Harvard University and his groundbreaking research on bioelectric signals has important applications for how we understand cancer, regenerative medicine, and even aging. It's a great joy today to have with us an exceptional personality in science and research, a great discoverer, a thinker, and a visionary of what can be regenerative and developmental biology, what creates form, what makes the cells communicate with each other, how they do it, is it a genetically modified or genetically engineered, or to what extent the interactions of the different components of our biology and physiology lead to the formation of our bodies and their structure and, and many other aspects that also relate to even implications and uh, possibilities in artificial intelligence that Professor Levin, Mike, is involved in. Mike, it's wonderful to have you. We have always thought that the DNA is the basis of the structure of the entire physiology. Of course, with some communication in the plasma and the different directions of cells talking to each other so that they know where to stop and how to grow. But you've taken this to a completely different dimension and showed something very new in intelligence and communication and information and also what you call collective intelligence and how all of these work together and find those mechanisms. So why don't we start with these important highlights and we're talking to a general intelligent audience but who is not necessarily expert in in the fields of biology and developmental biology in particular. Yeah, well, well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that very kind uh, introduction. Um, I, I want to say a couple of things uh, to kind of set the stage to uh, for talking about bioelectricity in, uh, in, in cell regulation and development and so on. The first thing is that I want to be clear, I am certainly not the first person to suggest that bioelectrics are important in development. So there were some really unique individuals, starting with Harold Burr in the 1930s and, and other folks at that time, and then really a heyday in the 60s, 70s, and 80s with Lionel Jaffe and his group and, and so on. And 
it's been actually known for a long time that some aspect of bioelectricity is really important for development and regeneration. I think we've moved the ball forward in some interesting ways that I'll talk about, but, but I want to be clear that in many ways we are, we are standing on the shoulders of, of, of giants, right? And in, in particular, Harold Burr, uh, the guy was amazing. He, uh, in the 30s, he had basically just the first good voltmeter. That's pretty much all he had. And based on all the measurements he took, he was able to foresee many of the things that are just now starting to come up. And so just amazing, amazing vision uh, and, and so on. And, they, and, and we are the beneficiaries of, of some of those thoughts. But the other thing I want to say is this idea, you know, what, what you, you just pointed out, um, the importance of, the, of genetics and, and so on. And I think one area where it was always clear that there was a really important uh, software component in addition to the genetically specified hardware, and that's neuroscience. Yeah, so, so in neuroscience, we knew that, yes, genetics are important to set up the various cell properties that your, your neurons and your brains have and so on. But after that, there's a tremendous amount of physiology, behavior, uh, learning, memory. There's all, all these other things that come up that are not in and of themselves genetically coded. And so this idea in, in neuroscience, the software hardware split in effect many layers, right? So, so there's, you know, kind of maybe, you know, Mars layers of analysis and things like that. What we have done is ported a lot of that kind of way of thinking to the rest of the body. So away from the brain and to ask ourselves, okay, if electrical networks implemented by physiology, that kind of software, if that's the answer to intelligent behavior in three-dimensional space, what is the origin of it evolutionarily? Where did it come from, right? It certainly didn't just arise when, when neurons and, and, and muscles appeared. So it's evolutionarily ancient. And what kind of problems might it have been solving before? And that gave rise to this notion of broadly intelligence in other spaces. So anatomical space, physiological space, gene expression space. And so those are the kinds of things that we now study. Wonderful. And so when we come to the cell, if we can just start looking at the different aspects of information, communication, intelligence, awareness, these kinds of values usually are considered on a higher level of neural activity. But uh, we see that even on the basic level of almost molecules, but at least for cells in, in terms of what we are concerned, that there is not only individual reactions to individual inputs or information, but that there is also a collective behavior, which you call collective intelligence. So even talking in terms of cells, and I think you also shown this in unicellular or some unicellular organisms searching for that. Can you explain to our listeners and viewers what this is about? Yeah, so there is a field of uh, research known as basal or primitive cognition. It's a field that looks for the evolutionary origin, meaning the simpler versions of the kinds of capacities that we enjoy as advanced uh, cognitive creatures. So, so learning, memory, um, you know, sort of metacognition, meaning I know that I know that kind of thing, right? Planning, all, all of all of these kinds of things have, of course, uh, as as Darwin already pointed out in his day, these kinds of things have their evolutionary origins, sort of at the beginning of, of life. I'll tell you a little bit about them, but before that, I want to make a kind of a more general point. As you say, people normally think it's a little weird to talk about cells making decisions, having memories, having preferences, and so on. But let's remember, and this is one reason why I think developmental biology is, to, to me anyway, uh, sort of the, the, the queen of all the sciences for a simple reason. In, in developmental biology, you see in front of your eyes the most amazing aspect of uh, science to me, which is that 
the journey from physics to mind. You see it right in front of your eyes. All of us started life as a quiescent oocyte. It's a little bag of chemicals, wasn't doing much. Anybody who would look at that would say, okay, there's no cognition here. There's just some chemistry, some physics, and that's it. It's a dynamical system and that's all. Nine months plus some number of years later, that system turns into something, whatever we are, that will make statements like, I'm not a machine and I have cognition and I believe this and I believe that. Okay, that process, you know, turning from a piece of a little, a little tiny piece of physics to a complex emergent mind is smooth. It's gradual. There is no magic lightning flash that happens at any particular moment that says, okay, boom, now you've got a true mind. That doesn't, that, that doesn't happen. And so, and so this, the, the, the slowly changing system shows you how it is that mind emerges from physics. So if we were to able to understand this, this is this is why I, you know, I study as a as a as a computer scientist interested in our intelligence broadly, artificial intelligence, the making of new minds. This is why my lab does developmental biology because that is where you see it happening, right, right in front of you. You see, you can see it happening. So even if all of the data on single cells being able to learn and navigate mazes and and do all kinds of interesting things, even if those data didn't exist, we could already conclude that they have to be, that they're just waiting for us to find them. Because, because we, we know that our cognitive capacities emerge from very simple origins that at one point we're single cells. So, so we know this has to be the case. And so I think uh, a lot of people who assume that there's some sort of magic qualities that are attributable to, to higher level cognition, that is just, you know, they say it's anthropomorphic to think of cells as doing this or that. It really is a holdover from a, from a pre-scientific worldview when well, it's the Garden of Eden view, right? That Adam is separate from all the animals. There's a discrete set of animals and Adam has qualities that none of the other animals have. And that's, that, that view has got to go. And so, so now we have lots of people studying um, how it is that slime molds can navigate the mazes and have memories and, and learn uh, from their environment. And, and that's just in 3D behavior. Right, you know, we, we've seen amazing examples of cells doing creative problem solving in physiological space, as bacteria do all the time, in metabolic spaces, in anatomical space. That's what, that's what we focus on. There's intelligence going all the way down. Even, in fact, actually, you, you, you said something very interesting. You know, cells, does it start with cells? We and others have found evidence of learning in molecular networks. Never mind cells. We're talking gene regulatory networks, the most, you know, sort of deterministic model that there is of genetics. You know, here's a bunch of genes that transcriptionally regulate each other. Those kinds of systems should have at least six different kinds of learning. This is wonderful. Can we define intelligence? Because here we have a mechanical exchange and mechanical reaction. And we can see this in computers and in artificial intelligence. How do you define intelligence so that we can talk about intelligence on those levels? Yeah, so there are many definitions. I'm not claiming that mine is the only one or is some privileged way the correct one, but I'll give you one that I like that I think is a useful one. So the uh, definition that I like comes from William James, and he said, intelligence is the ability to reach the same goal by different means. And I think this is very profound because what it tells you is that First of all, that it's a matter of degree, because the question isn't whether you are or are not intelligent. The question is, how competent are you at reaching your goals by different means? And so maybe not very much or maybe very powerfully. That's the first thing. The second thing is that the whole thing is centered on having goals. So goal-directed activity. So that, that I think is actually very important. A lot of people resist it, but I think it's, it's, it's really central. And the third thing is that it does not pre-commit to a specific problem space. So it doesn't say you can reach your goal in three-dimensional space. 
It might be a goal in physiological space. It might be a goal in anatomical space or, or, or other kinds of spaces. What it focuses you on is this idea that you don't only take a rote set of steps from beginning to end. I mean, any, you know, a, a clock can do that. I mean, any, any mechanism can do that. But what it means is that if you are deviated in some way, either pushed to a different region of that space or your structure is changed, something happens to you, despite that, you are able to take a novel path that you otherwise wouldn't have and you get back to the same goal. And I can tell you some amazing examples of that, of that capacity. But that's what I think intelligence is. It's, a, it's some degree of competency in reaching your goals despite the uncertainty of, of life in whatever space you operate in. That's wonderful. You mentioned you can tell us some examples. Why don't we go into that? Sure. Here, here's an example in morphous space. Now, now what's morphous space? Morphous space is the space of all possible configurations of some anatomical structure. So if you imagine a prototypical head, let's say, of a vertebrate, you might imagine the eyes could be different distances from each other. There could be different numbers of eyes. It could be different in different dimensions. All of those form a, a tremendous invisible space of all possible versions of that structure. Okay. And so, of course, every creature normally, reliably, so we, we start out as a single cell and then reliably end at one particular region of that state space that corresponds to whatever your species target morphology is. So acorns give rise to, to oak trees and frog eggs give rise to frogs and so on, right? So that's, that's a journey that we take. And the thing is that if we look at normal development, we get the feeling that, well, it's just a mechanical set of steps. That's all that they do. Of course, what else are they going to do, right? And we're fooled. We're really very much lulled into a false uh, simplicity by looking at the reliability of normal development. It's a little bit like a magic trick. When you watch a professional magician, as long as everything goes right, you'll learn nothing. You know, the things go great and you go, wow, that's amazing. Well, I guess that's how it would have to be. It's when he makes a mistake, that's when you start to see how the trick is done, right? So the same thing is true in, in development. So I'll give you a couple of examples. First, a very common example, um, monozygotic twins. So let's say in humans, when you cut an early embryo in half, you don't get two half bodies the way we would if we cut any other artifact. If you took your computer and cut it in half, you would get two half computers. If you cut a, an early embryo in half, you get two monozygotic twins, perfectly normal bodies, because each half very rapidly realizes that the other side is missing, regenerates whatever is needed, and now you've got two normal humans. I'll give you a really kind of amazing example in the frog. You know, frog embryos start out as tadpoles, and tadpoles have to become adult frogs. They have to change into adult frogs. Their faces are completely different. So in order to change, the eyes have to move forward, the jaws have to move, the nostrils, every, everything has to move around. It was previously thought that this system is a hardwired system, meaning, meaning people would say it has no IQ to speak of, because all normal tadpoles look the same, all normal frogs look the same, and if you just somehow genetically encode a hardwired set of movements, so every organ moves in a particular direction, a particular amount, then you get a normal frog from a normal tadpole. So we took the hypothesis that what if, what if the system has more intelligence than we give it credit for? Let's find out. And that, that's another really important thing about this is that all these, philosophically, when I talk about intelligence and cognition in these unconventional substrates, these are not philosophical claims. These are engineering claims. These are all meant to be testable experimental protocols, right? And so we get to do experiments and find out who, what model of intelligence is the best to explain. So what we did was we created so-called Picasso tadpoles. Why? Because everything is in the wrong place. The, the eyes might be on the side of the head. The jaws are off to the side. Every, everything is completely scrambled. And we found that this system, which starts off in the wrong configuration of anatomical space, 
will still make a really good frog because all of these components will move in novel paths, abnormal paths that normally don't happen. In fact, sometimes they go too far and actually have to come back a little bit. They go through these novel paths and then they stop. And when do they stop? When they've made a correct frog face. So this is, this is a, a, a perfect example of James's intelligence in anatomical space. This is a system that even when you deviate it to a wrong location, can still get to where it needs to go through a novel path and it knows it's reached its goal because that's when it stops. That's when everything stops moving and stops uh, remodeling and, and, and rearranging. So, so there are many examples like this. Uh, regeneration in salamanders is like this. You know, you can, you can amputate a limb at different levels. They will very rapidly regrow exactly what's needed. And then they stop. They stop when it's done. And so this ability to reach the same anatomical outcome despite abnormal starting conditions, that's one amazing competency of this process. There's a profound lesson to be learned from all this. A second competency is this, the tubule, there's a little tube that leads to the kidneys in salamanders. That tube, if you sort of think about it in cross-section, so here's the tube and you sort of think about it in cross-section, there are eight or 10 cells that make a little circle that form this tube. One trick you can do with early salamander embryos is you can increase the amount of genetic material they have. And what happens is uh, the cell doesn't die. You would think that having extra copies of all the instructions would screw things up, but actually no, the cells are fine, but the cells get bigger. They get bigger and bigger. So you can have twice, four times, six times, eight times the normal genetic material. As you do that, the cells get bigger and bigger. So the first amazing thing is that um, cranking up the amount of DNA doesn't hurt anything. You still get normal salamanders out. The second amazing thing is that the salamanders are the same size, even though the cells are much bigger. What does that mean? That means that if you take a cross section through the tubule, there are fewer cells that make exactly the same structure. So instead of eight to 10, there might be four or five. The most amazing thing, and the, the, the sort of the third incredible piece of data here is that when you make the cells so gigantic that only one cell fits, that you can't fit even two cells here, what will happen is one cell will wrap around itself, leaving a hole in the middle, to give you that exact same tubule. Now that's a completely different molecular mechanism. Before you were using cell-to-cell -cell communication to make that tube. Now you're using some sort of cytoskeletal bending to bend the cell around itself. So different molecular mechanisms are being called up in the service of a large-scale anatomical goal. And so, so think about what this means from the developmental perspective. If you're an embryo, you can't count on not being cut in half at some point. You can't count on how much DNA you have because it may change. You can't count on how big your own parts are. You don't even know how big your cells are going to be. And despite all of that incredible variety, you still need to be able to make a pretty good salamander at the end. So this ability of evolution to not just make hardwired solutions to specific problems, but to actually make problem-solving machines that make very few assumptions about what is going to happen, but figure it out on the fly. They have the machinery to figure this out on the fly. Those are the kinds of examples of intelligence. But the DNA is always a reference or is it uh, sitting in the background just producing proteins, which means when you have to set the goal, what are the mechanisms that help cells to talk to each other and understand what is their collective intelligence, which is a term you also use? How does it yeah. work? It, it sounds like magic when one hears it. It's really wonderful yeah. anyway. I'll tell you the non-magical component first, and then I'll tell you the part that does uh, kind of sound like, like magic. The, the, the first thing to realize is that, and I, of course, didn't come up with the idea of collective intelligence. People have studied collective intelligence for many years, but, but a lot of people have this idea that, well, maybe a, a termite colony or a beehive is a kind of collective intelligence, but we are good old-fashioned unified intelligence as well. Let's remind ourselves, we are bags of cells. We are all intelligences, our collective intelligences, because we're all made of parts. 
right? So somehow, even in the kind of standard case, we have to answer this question of how does this bag of cells, neurons or whatever else, enable actual intelligence that has goals and memories that belong to the collective, but not to the individual cells. So you have all kinds of, you, you and I have all kinds of memories and goals that none of our cells could comprehend, but the collective somehow does. Similarly, in morphogenesis, no individual cell knows what a finger is or how many fingers you have, but the collective absolutely knows how many, because if you're a salamander and you lose a couple, they will regrow to exactly the right number. Okay, so this issue of collective intelligence of scaling from competent parts to a, a unified central intelligence is the kind of problem that, that we're studying here. Mechanistically, the part that's not magic is the part where we now understand some of the mechanisms of how that works. So here are some things we understand. The first thing in order to enable the scaling is you need cells to be able to communicate with each other, in fact, very tightly, so that they can share information in a way that, that kind of wipes the ownership of that information. So for example, if two cells have their own distinct information and uh, it's very easy for them to keep that information separate, then you have two tiny proto-individuals, you have two cells. But if you can merge cells in a way where the information that each cell has, it's very hard to know whether it belongs to the one cell or to the other cell, then you start to get a merging where it's like a mind meld. If I can't tell if my memories belong to me or to you, we are in, in some sense, we have a collective intelligence because we cannot differentiate. And so the way evolution does this is evolution discovered this amazing thing called a gap junction. A gap junction is a tiny little uh, set of proteins that make a little kind of a hatch or a conduit between cells. They're not just the signal that one cell secretes and it floats away and it hits the other cell. It's something much more important. It is a direct connection between the internal milieus of each cell. Okay, so they sort of dock like a, like a, like two submarines docking underwater. So what, what that means is that information that is generated in one cell immediately propagates to the other cell. The other cell cannot tell because they all share the same information molecules. The other cell can't tell, hey, that's not mine. That's not my memory. That's somebody else's memory. They can't tell the difference. So now both of those cells, and in fact, many cells are start to share the same memories. So that, that starts to wipe their individual identities and provide a larger scale system that has more computational capacity. If it's a sheet of cells, it has the ability to sense much bigger areas. And now you can start to work towards bigger goals. So the communication that takes place this way is electrical. Again, it shouldn't be a surprise to anybody because that's our best example of emergent intelligence in the brain. That's, what, you know, that's the system that brains use. They use electrical communication to harness lots of different cells to the same purpose. So what we have done in, in, in 2000 or so, my group developed the first molecular tools to be able to read and write this electrical information. Very much like, I mean, we, we borrow many of our concepts from neuroscience, you know, people working in brains so have for many years wanted to scan electrically the living brain and be able to uh, decode, it's called neural decoding. They want to be able to scan the electrical activity of your brain and say, ah, this person is thinking about XYZ. They have memories of ABC and their plans are, you know, whatever. We basically started to do this in the rest of the body. So what we can now do is use a kind of uh, voltage sensitive, uh, it's a molecule that fluoresces, it glows in different ways, depending on the cell voltage. So we can use it as a kind of almost like a brain scan, but, but of any tissue. So if we take, let's take, for example, a, a flatworm called a planarian. These planarians are, uh, planarians are amazing. Um, if you cut them into pieces, every piece regrows exactly what's missing. Okay, so, so they, they have very clear anatomical control. So what we did was we asked a simple question, how does that piece know how many heads it's supposed to have? I mean, normally one head, one tail, but how does it know that? So, so what we did is we found an electrical signature that seems to specify one head, one tail. 
we actually then tested that hypothesis by modifying that electrical pattern, no change in the DNA. We did it using drugs that open and close ion channels in a very specific way. So no changes in the genome, standard uh, factory issue hardware, so to speak. But what we did was we did what you do with a computer, meaning that when you want to reprogram a modern computer to do certain things, you don't rewire the hardware. I mean, we did in the 40s and 50s, but now we don't need to do that. You provide stimuli. It, it exposes an interface, in fact, an electrical interface, and you use that interface to give it experiences. You, you, you control it by giving it stimuli through the keyboard or through whatever your interface is. Cells also expose an electrical interface. Those are ion channels. Now, they're not doing it for our benefit. They're doing it for each other so that cells can control each other's behavior, but we can engineer that and we can hijack that. And so we can exploit it by using drugs that mimic certain electrical states. And when we do this, we were able to modify that electrical pattern to say not one head, two heads. And when you do that, the fragment that you cut looks at that electrical pattern. That is literally the memory of what a correct planarian looks like. How do we know? Because when we change it, guess what those cells build? They build a two-headed worm. Now, I call it a memory because, uh, like any good memory, it is stable, meaning that when I take a two-headed worm and I cut it again, that piece will again make a two-headed animal, even though the genetics is untouched. The genome is, is totally wild-head. So that tells you right there that the question to how many heads do you have is not nailed down in the hardware. It's rather what the genome, it's not nailed down by the genome. What the genome does is create hardware that by default says one head, the same way that when you get a calculator from the factory, you turn it on. First thing it says is zero, always, 100% of the time, right? So it's a reliable piece of hardware. By default, it does a certain thing but it's a reprogrammable calculator. If you give it inputs, it will say something else. So that part is the non-magical part. We actually, we literally now can see the memories of the tissues of the body. We can rewrite them in some cases, certainly not in most, but, it, but in some where we figured it out, we've, we've been able to rewrite them and we can track them and we can, we can track those changes as sources of birth defects, as uh, regenerative limitations, as cancer, we can talk about that. And we can now start to rewrite them. And this is something that we're actively doing in, for biomedicine. You know, that's kind of the non-magical non part. There is a kind of a deeper, I think, philosophical issue here, which is a little more magical. And if you want, we can talk about that. Yeah, I know you have been interested in philosophy of mind, and you have already mentioned a few words about mind and connection to the mind. Because when you think of memory, information exchange, intelligence, agreeing to be one kind of cell and the other one agrees that it will let go of its own and becomes with you or will be called upon to become one kind of cell or the other. It really evokes the idea of consciousness, of awareness. It's like, it's another word just to use it. It's not like, as you said, anthropomorphic awareness, which means my feeling as a human being, they might have these cells, a different kind of awareness. Still, they are kind of aware of each other, working together, and somehow they have an element of consciousness. And is that maybe where it takes us to the magical side, or there are another, other aspects of the magic in it? There's more, there's more magic. The thing about consciousness, and I, you know, in my work, I haven't said yet too, too many things about specifically consciousness. I try to stick to, at least in most of the things I've written, to cognition and behavior, just because it's easier to, to talk about those things. But I do think that the thing about consciousness is that for whatever reason we attribute consciousness to brains, right? So, so there, are, there are many theories of consciousness, and, and at least the good theories are supposed to tell you what is it 
about specific structures like the brain that make them associated with consciousness, right? If, if it's going to be a good theory, it has to pick it out. Well, like what is the feature that, that enables consciousness? I, I have yet to see a theory that where the features that it picks out are not existing elsewhere in the body. So for the same reasons that you might say that brains are associated with consciousness, those would be the exact same reasons to say that, yeah, probably the rest of your body has some level too. And now, now we can't access it anymore. We, I mean, this is the other minds problem, right? We can't access each other's consciousness. We can't access, you know, there's probably in the split brain studies, there's some interesting work that says there's at least two residents in most of us, right? At least two. Many, many. When you ask a neuroscientist today, yeah. there are many people yeah, yeah. working here and then it's kind yeah. of looks yeah. the same, but it's a different, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And we don't have access to that primary, you know, our, our primary, at least the two of us here that are talking to each other now, we don't have access to, in our phenomenal consciousness to all of those things. Right. We kind of feel unified. But for those same reasons, you would have to say that other cells, I mean, one thing that you can do, and I've, I, I, this is a game I play with, with my students, I ask them to do this, I say, take any paper in neuroscience, put it through Microsoft Word, do a kind of find replace. And anywhere it says neuron, just have it say cell. And anywhere that says millisecond, uh, say uh, minutes or hours. And that's it. And now you have a developmental biology paper because everything else works, right? So, so neither the tools nor the concepts of neuroscience logically tell the difference between, between neurons and non-neurons with some specific differences, but largely everything carries over. And so I think it's completely reasonable if we're talking about consciousness. Uh, I mean, some people deny it even in us, of course, right? But if you, if you accept that at least our, our brains are conscious, then I see no reason not to extend it, not to extend it down into into other simpler systems, other spaces, and so on. So, so that's that's the thing about consciousness. I mean, the the thing that I was mentioning before in terms of kind of kind of the other magic is simply this: there's an interesting sense in which evolution gets more back than it puts in. And what I mean by that is there are generic laws of physics, of computation, of networks, of mathematics, of many different things where if you just make the appropriate uh, piece of matter in uh, the, the appropriate machine, you immediately become coupled to some sort of invisible, this is, you know, what uh, um, Pythagoras might have called the, you know, the world of forms or something, you, you immediately become coupled to all this other stuff that exists that gives you a variety of what, what a physicist might call free lunches. I'll give you just some very simple examples. If, um, and this is just a silly, this is with several, a silly one first. Imagine your evolution and you're trying to evolve a triangle. So when you're in this world, a triangle um, has to have the right, the right angles to be successful. So you do a search through all the possible, you get the first angle and then you get the second angle. You don't need to evolve the third angle. You know what the third angle is. It's, it's immediately given to you for free. Where does that free gift come from? Well, it comes from geometry, but you didn't have to evolve it, right? So, okay. So, so now if evolution discovers an ion channel, an ion channel is basically a, uh, it's a voltage gated current conductance. So it's a transistor, it's basically a transistor. If you put a few transistors in the right way, you get a logic gate. And if you have ands and ors, and you know, if you get not and, you can, you can do um, all the computations. Well, you have a truth table to this lot. Did you have to evolve the truth table? No, all you evolved was the ion channel. The truth table you get for free. You get, you get the ability to do propositional um, basic logic with the logic gates just because you had that, that very simple machine. And there are many ways, you know, there are laws of biomechanics and laws of networks, uh, you know, Stu Kaufman's work on, on networks and so on. All of this stuff is this incredible set of uh, these, these free lunches. So one could imagine that what evolution is doing, it's not micromanaging all this stuff. It's not trying to evolve all the pieces of it. 
what it does is searches the spaces of almost like a kind of key into this massive database. And each key brings with it, it sort of pulls down each physical machine pulls down all this stuff that, you know, mathematicians have been talking about this for a long time. Where do, do the truths of mathematics live? I, mean, I have no idea. It's somewhere. But evolution pulls this stuff down and exploits it all the time in, in, in electrical signaling and biomechanical signaling, laws of diffusion, um, all of these things. So that to me is one of the, tr truly one of the most magical things is, is that you get more out of this process than you put in. So when we go back to goal, like we have to say, you know, there is a goal and then there is a set mechanism to reach the goal and you can tweak the goal a little bit and you can get two heads and a, and a flatworm or, or something like that. But is there like where these goals come from? If we take yeah. this to some kind of philosophical perspective. Yeah. Yeah, that's really the one of the most important questions. Um, I, I will give you a simple example. I mean, one thing one thing you might think to start off with is you might think, okay, the goals are set by evolution. In other words, certain goals are adaptive and and result in more offspring. Other goals are maladaptive and do not result in more offspring. So evolution finds these goals. That's a, that's a decent place to start. But let's think about this. We made something, and this is a collaborative work between uh, my lab and Joshua Bongard's lab. We made something called a xenobot. What's a xenobot? So, so you take uh, you take an early you take a frog embryo, and it has some skin cells. And these skin cells normally uh, sit quietly on the outside of the of the embryo, and they keep out the bacteria. And they have these little hairs that move around, and they move the mucus on the side of the frog. And you look at that, and you look at normal embryos, and you might say, okay, well, that's what these cells know how to do. And the frog genome is such that it creates this hardware that does that. So we asked an interesting question, how much plasticity is there in the system? In other words, if we were to liberate these cells from their environment and give them a chance to reboot their multicellularity, okay, let them, let's just see what they do now. What could they do? They could do nothing. They could crawl away from each other. They could die. They could make a flat monolayer like cell culture makes. They could do many things. So we took these cells away. Um, we did not modify their genome. We did not put in any weird nanomaterials. They are completely wild type frog skin cells. What we did do, we did, a, we did a new kind of engineering, which is engineering by subtraction of constraints. We released constraints. So, so we said in the absence of these other cells, what do they do? Well, what do they do? They come together, they make a spherical little creature, which we call a xenobot, because Xenopus lavis is the name of the frog, and it's a biorobotics platform, so we call it a xenobot. These little balls, they take their cilia, which are normally used to redistribute the mucus, and they now use it to swim around. So, so if you have a ball like this, the cilia on this end row this way, the cilia on this end row this way, and the whole thing swims. So it's completely self-actuated. We don't have to pace it. We don't control it. It has all kinds of different motions. You can see this. Uh, there's a whole website devoted to this stuff uh, from our center. They have all kinds of motions. If they do a maze, they take corners without hitting the opposite wall. So they know where the opportunity is to take a corner. They have spontaneous behaviors. They, they Sometimes they go, sometimes they stop. They go in circles, they go straight. They regenerate. So if you damage one, it will try to heal back to its configuration. And one of the most amazing things that they do, and this, is, this was our, our latest paper on this, is they do something we call kinematic self-replication. Let me just tell you what that is, and then you'll see why I'm, I'm bringing all this up for the talk of goals. We made these animals, these creatures, unable to reproduce in the normal froggy fashion, right? They're just skin. They have no nerves. They have no reproductive organs. They can't do the way that frogs normally reproduce. Within 48 hours, they figure out a new way to make copies of themselves. What is that new way? It's uh, von Neumann's dream. It's the ability for a machine to make copies of itself from loose parts in the environment. 
what we did was we sprinkled loose skin cells into their environment. So think it is a Petri dish. There's a, there's a bunch of loose cells and we put in some xenobots. What do the xenobots do in that scenario is they run around. And those loose cells are similar, same kind? Exactly the same kind. Although we could make a different kind that this is all ongoing. That we'll, we're, we're mixing, we're doing experiments now where you mix these things. But then when it's the same kind, the xenobots move, run around, they collect these loose cells into little balls and they sort of polish them, they run around and they, and they polish them. They work in groups, by the way, to do this. They, they polish them. And because they are working not with a passive material, they're working with the same material that we worked with when we made Xenobots. This is an agential material. This is a material with an agenda. What do the cells like to do when they're packed into a ball? Well, they like to make a Xenobot. And of course, within a couple of days, those things become the next generation of Xenobots. What do they do? They run around and they find loose cells and they make more Xenobots, which is the third generation and the fourth. And so, so let's get back to the issue of goals. These critters have this new property, kinematic replication. To our knowledge, no other creature on earth uses this. There's never been evolutionary pressure to be a good xenobot because there's never been any xenobots. In the lineage of the frog, there's no point that we know of at which there would have been selection to be a good xenobot. So why is it that the frog genome knows how to make xenobots? It certainly knows how to make tadpoles and frogs, and we can come up with, you know, um, selectionist explanations for that, right? The environment is such, and everybody else died off and so on. But at the same time, that same genome is actually in a different environment, makes it a completely different creature that does something completely different, it, which is extremely surprising. Nobody knew it was going to make copies of itself in this way. And, and who knows what else? I mean, we're just scratching the surface, right? And with no evolutionary pressure. No evolutionary pressure that we know of, no long period of adaptation, just immediately they do this. So, so now we start to think, okay, where do these goals come from? These guys have anatomical goals and they have behavioral goals, possibly physiological goals. We're doing some transcriptional studies of these things. So now your question, right? Where do these goals come from? Well, so now I don't think anymore that we can just blame everything on evolution the way that we typically do is say, oh, well, it's evolved. I don't know why, where these goals come from. So it may be, well, I'll tell you my, my conjecture. My conjecture is that we're back to this world of forms idea. My conjecture is, let's go back to the electric circuit idea. If you make a set of transistors, there are a number of computations that you will be able to do. You will have AND gates, NOR gate, and you know, NAND gates. You will have latches and counters, and there's some stuff you can make. By making that machine, by making that piece of hardware in the physical world, you are able to pick out of this cloud of potential computational capacities. And then you say, well, where did they come from? Well, you didn't design them. They were probably, you know, in, in the sense that the prime numbers are always there. They don't wait for us to sort of, you know, count them. They're just always there. I think that's what this is. I think what, what evolution has done in creating the frog genome is create a little machine that is capable of accessing a number of different coherent ways of living in the real world. One of them looks like a tadpole. One of them looks like a xenobot. Who knows what else it's able to access, but it's able to access all this stuff because it has some simple components that are physical machines that index into these available forms. And so, of course, our job as scientists is to understand what that space looks like. What else is in there? Like, what else can we, and as engineers, we want to access this space. So, and so you know, for, for medical applications, for example, if we want to make biobots bio that do particular functions and, you know, heal broken organs and find cancer and whatever else, we have to understand that space. And we have to say, what stimuli would we have to give to these cells to enable the collective to pick out other cool tricks from this space that contains all of the laws of you know, physics, computation, all this other stuff. 
so I think goals to, to answer, uh, you know, this is a long winded answer to your question. I think goals come from a couple of different places. They are a mix of specific things that were selected for, for example, the ability to live at room temperature in salt water, you know, that was probably selected for specifically, but also generic laws that are not specifically selected for, but you gain access to by having certain flexible kinds of hardware. And I think that's what evolution is really good at is, is, is picking out that hardware. That's wonderful. I'm glad you gave a long, uh, long answer, which was very clear. Well, this might kind of take us a bit because you highlighted uh, Pythagoras and then in an indirect way, Plato also and the world of forms and ideas and even more and more scientists and particularly physicists looking at quantum mechanics and ultimate reality of a potential unified field and as my work also and consciousness is exploiting that field or exploring rather that field. Do you feel like, I know as a scientist one would not commit, but there would be like the ultimate reality is somewhat mathematical, somewhat abstract forms, because you mentioned that and that there is the, the thing you get for free, as you mentioned, is the extra thing which makes things fit together. And the fact that so many aspects of physics and quantum mechanics, quantum field theory are pointing to something more of consciousness kind of level of dynamics that are not so physical and material as we, we feel. And are we ultimately able to connect to that even from the empirical hard science perspective? It's just your intuition and feeling about this, since I know you're interested in philosophy of mind again. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's kind of inescapable. If, well, well, two things. One is that if we're going to do science at all, it is inescapable to make that first leap of faith to assume that there is an underlying order to all of this. Because if there's no underlying order, then science would be impossible. There would be no patterns to understand. There would be no, no, no way to make sense of the world, right? So, so every scientist starts out with the assumption that, okay, we are going to be able to make some sort of sense out of this. Why? That's not guaranteed. Um, we assume it's because there is an underlying order. So I think, I think we have to assume that. Now, the next question is, is the, to, to what extent, how much cognitive kind of qualities can we ascribe to this order? And this is a deep question because you can imagine it the same way that pieces, let's say cells, come together to scale up to a larger scale intelligence, right? So we can understand, we, we know how to decompose things now. So we can look at a brain of a human and say, ah, you're really made of pieces. Let's find out how these pieces give rise to this. Okay. But you can think about it in the opposite direction. Let's go upwards. Let's say if I were a cell, would I be able to gather evidence that I was part of a larger system, right? And if you were, for example, a neuron in a neural network being trained, you might take a hypothesis that says, well, I live in this sort of cold, unfeeling universe that doesn't care what I do, and it's purely mechanical, and the agency of my environment is zero, I'm the only one with agency, so I learn and whatever. You would be wrong, right? Because, because actually, you are part of a larger system that A, is being trained with rewards and punishments for specific things. So actually, your universe, in fact, does care what you do and does have uh, preferences in some degree of you're part of a system with some degree of intelligence. And while I suspect because of girdled limitations and other things, you could never actually, as a subunit, you could never see the big picture that the whole system has, you may be able to gather evidence that you're part of such a system. So what we're really talking about here is, am I learning or am I being trained, right? The, the difference is 
how much agency, right? How much agency is in my environment as my partner? When I work with the environment, am I the only agent and therefore I am learning? Or in fact, is the environment also has some agency and in fact, I'm being trained, right? That's an important thing. I think, in fact, I think evolution probably has some good incentive to make creatures good at this because otherwise you have parasites and exploiters and various other things. So of course, I don't know, I don't know the answer to this, but I do think that this question of how much basic physics and the other things of, that describe the universe in which we live, how mind-like all of that stuff is, is very much an open question. I do not believe that we can assume it's zero. I think that's a very dangerous assumption. I think we have to be open to experiments. And I like the work of uh, people like uh, Chris Fields and Carl Friston and various other people that are trying to recast basic physics. Basically, let's, let's put it this way, to find invariance in basic physics and uh, cognition, right? And things like active inference, right? Where, where some of the same formalism, the same math can be used to describe uh, physical objects, including quantum objects and decision-making and complex uh, human behavior. Active inference, for example, is one, and I'm not saying that's the only framework, but that's one framework that it's not the kind of panpsychism where you take basic physics exactly how it is, and then you sort of paint on this, this thing and says, oh, and by the way, they also have uh, you know, feelings. It's a different project. The idea is to say, no, the basic physics, the free energy formulations of, of physics are actually the same thing that drives cognition and consciousness. So basically it's right there at the beginning, not, not as a kind of side effect, but we should reformulate physics to be clear that there's some level of, of surprise minimization and anticipation and these things. So I don't know what the right level is, but I don't assume at all that it's going to be zero. Yeah, beautiful. Because it makes sense that if we have some quality of or aspect of our being of which we are sure, and if we go to Descartes and say, you know, we are more sure of being conscious than we are sure of the physical reality that we have, then it's easier, in fact, more logical to assign this kind of category of being to other aspects than to deny other things from having a quality that is of the same. So even though we have to accept that it's not the same level of awareness, the same kind of, as we mentioned at the beginning, meta-consciousness or consciousness of the self and consciousness of present, past and future, but we can come to the conclusion that everything has somewhat this quality of existence, or if we extend it higher, more than even what the panpsychists say, we can go to the idealist perspective and say, it is possible to imagine that the ultimate reality is consciousness, and now try to find out how consciousness actually interacts with itself to lead to the dynamics of what we see as the physical reality experience from different perspectives by different aspects of itself. So this is the work um, I am you know, working on and the basis that the ultimate reality, and that's a metaphysical, of course, question, but if it can answer so many other aspects of observation and goal and memory and information and communication and all of that, and even go into the field of ethics and epistemology and ontology, then we might come to a conclusion about the ultimate reality and the meaning and where goals emerge from and what is the meaning of all of this? Why is it happening? 
which are all metaphysical questions because in science you see the what and how but we don't see the why because it's an endless regression of questions so it's very interesting that you see that consciousness has a place awareness has a place even on the collective level of cells or individual cells including even you mentioned molecules and so we're going into into the right direction i'd like to ask you about uh, take this collective intelligence to another level and that is the collective intelligence of society in the same way as we are a bunch of cells as you mentioned society is a bunch of people who are a bunch of cells also and so maybe the collective intelligence and the collective decision making of society has something to learn from communication and information and accepting each other's role and accepting the way the cells accept that I'll participate in the formation of a new head, but I'll be part of the eye or part of the space between the eyes and it's my function and it's okay and it's fine. And so maybe that can lead to a perception of even society and sociology extending this beyond cellular function and collective cellular function and even artificial intelligence to collective behavior in society. Do you think it's possible to extrapolate or have you thought about this? Yeah, I've thought about it. I should preface this by saying that I have no uh, sort of uh, credentials in that area, right? So I'm, you know, I'm not uh, trained uh, really to, uh, I have no expertise in thinking about the uh, social issues. So this is purely my, uh, you know, kind of off the top of my head, uh, what, what I think. Um, on the one hand, I think you're right in that a lot of the kinds of uh, dynamics that we're talking about are scale-free in important ways. So it is not just about medium-sized um, organisms uh, making being made up of cells. A lot of these principles work all the way up and all the way down. There's no particular special scale to them. So, so I think it's completely reasonable to start to think about how these principles would apply to larger scales. At the same time, I think we have to be really careful for the following reason. Let's say that you go rock climbing and you go rock climbing and you uh, rub a bunch of skin cells off of your hands, right? You come home, you're very happy. You know, you, you climb the new mountain face, uh, great. Uh, you know, you're maybe, a, you're now a champion, whatever, whatever it is, but you killed a bunch of your cells. Now, from the perspective of the cells, the fact that they were part of a system the fact that you now get certain rewards from whatever, whether you know, spiritually or, or materially that you did whatever you did, to them, that's neither here nor there. You're operating in some space that they can't possibly understand. What they know is that they've been, they've been killed off. So my point is simply that larger systems end up with goals that are often not in the best interest of the members of that system. So, sometimes, but sometimes not. And the goals of larger systems can be incredibly alien, hard to understand, and not necessarily aligned with the goals of the components. So I, so I just think we have to be careful. I have no doubt that humans form social structures, financial structures, all these other kinds of large-scale systems that have new dynamical and, and possibly cognitive properties of which we're not aware that they are distinct individuals in an important sense. I think all of that exists. I just think it has the potential to 
work out in ways that uh, we, we are that are not going to make us happy. So the only thing I'm arguing against is the simple. I've, people have said to me before, oh, it's so great that cells connect together to make this thing and they lose their identity. We should be like that. And I'm saying, eh, actually, you got to be really careful with that because it doesn't always end up well for the cells. So I do think we need to keep a very careful eye on what systems we, uh, we become part of. This is beautifully said. It also, of course, will depend on what the ultimate goal is, because if we find that there is a goal that is transcendental, that is beyond the simple goal of creating a specific function, but of evolving in a specific direction, and also the quality of consciousness and the, the, you know, the losing of some cells that have limited consciousness as sacrifice, if you like, on the way of climbing a mountain is not so dramatic if the cells don't have such high level of awareness of themselves and their existence and their importance and their telos, their meaning in life and all of that, because they're not living on that level. Whereas when you grow in consciousness, such as a human being, then there is a higher demand and a higher expectation of your meaningfulness, you know, because we eat things, you know, we eat plants and some people eat animals and animals eat each other in the jungle and that's part of nature. So you say, well, there is a sacrifice in order to create higher order, lesser entropy. So you, you're eating order in a sense from the environment to fight the entropic forces that that lead to um, disintegration and to maintain this kind of growth and evolution. But it all depends also on, as we grow in consciousness, what is significant, what is all right to sacrifice versus not all right to sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think losing some cells is okay for the reason that you laid out. But you'll note that throughout history, especially you know modern history, we've had a number of collectivist types of movements that have made exactly that claim that in in service of a greater ideal, which may or may not be clearly specified, it's okay that uh, you know acceptable losses in terms of human lives, right? We've 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 seen this in the in the world, and we still see it. And this idea that it, that in the in the service of, of of some kind of greater pattern, it's okay that uh, that there will be acceptable acceptable casualties. So I think as cognitive units, it's on us. It's our responsibility to do our best to figure out. Which systems are we being asked or pressured to be parts of? Do we want to be part of those systems? And if somebody says to me, look, uh, you're going to be part of this tremendous thing, I, I can't explain what it is because you're not cognitively able to comprehend it the way that, you know, the ants under your car wheel don't understand where you're going in the morning when you go to work. It's just, it's impossible for them to comprehend. They say, don't worry, you know, life's going to be really hard, but don't worry, there's a greater design. I, I for one, am very suspicious of these things. Maybe, maybe there's a great, a great design. And maybe if I understood the great design, I would be willing to go along with it, or maybe not. And so that's why I think we have to be really careful about rolling up uh, these biological analogies because larger scales will absolutely bend the option space for their parts to make it easier for them to do things in their space. And the parts usually have no idea what's, what's going on at that space. They just see local gradients of some level of competency. So this is, I think, an existential challenge for humanity going forward is to develop a science of, of two things. First, when you do have a collective of competent parts coming together to be some sort of a larger intelligence, can we predict 
what is that intelligence going to want? What are the goals going to be, right? We are terrible at this. And yet we're, we're doing this all the time. We make swarm robotics and internet of things and uh, all kinds of financial structures and, and political structures. We are very poor at guessing what the final system is going to try to do. We're, we're just not good at that. So we need, we need a science of that. And we need a science of how to gather evidence of, am I a component of a bigger thing? And what is that bigger thing going to push me to do? How is it bending my option space, right? Those kinds of things are, are really critical for, our, for us to mature, I think, as a, as a species. Yeah, this also takes us to the worldview, what worldview one has, in a sense, if we want to summarize all of this. It's when you talk about goals and understanding meaning and meaning of life and responsibility and all of that, that we can all put of this in, in a kind of worldview. And that is why I feel, from a personal perspective again, uh, that raising consciousness is a very important factor because if consciousness is rising and so we have a scale of consciousness, a range of consciousness from lower, meager consciousness in the elementary particles and cells and growing into higher consciousness as we see in humans, even humans have different layers and levels of understanding of ability to to see the laws of nature, to express the existence and the relationship with others and the importance and priorities and what you sacrifice, what you don't sacrifice and respect of the environment, for example, respect of others, going to uh, solutions that are not sacrificing people and sacrificing economy and sacrificing the environment. And how do we do that? And that is where the work of consciousness itself is involved. So how much are you conscious of? Which means the individual collective intelligence, to what extent it is conscious of what? It's conscious of its, you know, making a head in a specific shape. This is one level. Another level of consciousness can be making a society that is holistic, that is well integrated, in which the individuals are allowed to play their roles, and allowed to grow and prosper. And that is a wider consciousness than just the consciousness of the collective intelligence of a bunch of cells that need to create a head, for example. So the issue in, in this metaphysics and this perspective becomes raising consciousness so that we as humans are able to take into consideration the largest number of factors and variables that will allow us to have a better world, a better environment, a better relationship with each other. So in a similar way as a planarian or a flatworm takes into consideration specific aspects of what it needs to build, if we are able to take into consideration the entire planet, the entire human life, the entire history and future, and have this as part of ourselves, then we are likely to cooperate and work better. Now, if we impose a solution, let's say, let's sacrifice this for the basis of this, it is not necessarily a best solution because we don't know. And in this case, uh, we are using lesser intelligence and lesser consciousness than what is required to have a better better life. So 
ultimately the solution would be raising consciousness of the individuals, particularly as we are facing artificial intelligence, we didn't have time to to look at that. And also, you know, in, in a sense, your work and its implication for curing disease, for example, for regeneration, for cancer, etc., where you want the cancer cell, for example, to start communicating, be part of the game, play with us, don't play on your own. That's basically what it is. Get it to play along with the game. And so those situations, even on societal level, that are not communicating, that are not aware of each other, that are not on a higher level of consciousness, then they have limited perspectives and they can lead to decisions that are not so healthy for for evolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, two things to mention in that respect. One is it's uh, you know what you said about the cancer cells. So the other cells are constantly trying to normalize incipient cancer cells by electrically trying to plug them into this to this network. Now you can ask yourself from the perspective of that cell, is that a good deal or not? Because in the normal mammalian body, the soma is disposable. So if that cell chooses to play along with the tissue, it's guaranteed to be disposed of in some short number of years. Whereas, for example, there are transmissible cancers in in dogs and Tasmanian devils that live for thousands of years. These cells are as if they were amoebas living on, but instead of the you know lakes, they live in these mammals. They sort of hop from animal to animal and they have this much lengthier life. Now they have a lengthier life as a single cell or maybe as a tumor that doesn't necessarily, that may, you know, they have some structure. So maybe, maybe a little more than, than a single cell. But you know, it's, a, it's an interesting trade-off because the other cells are trying to push it into a deal that actually gives it a shorter term survival, but perhaps uh, in the context of a greater thing, which we like, whole bodies are better than tumors, but these are all tricky. But, but I really like what you were saying before about expanding, expanding awareness, because we have a paper recently, um, five of us, myself and, and a few uh, uh, folks who are uh, Buddhist scholars, we, we sort of thought about these kinds of things from, from the Buddhist perspective. And one interesting place of intersection here is that so, so I've put forward this, this model of, of the self in terms of how can we compare truly diverse intelligences? So we're talking about you know, normal animals, synthetically created animals, um, software AIs, aliens, you know, you name it, like, oh, how, how can we compare them all to each other? And I, I propose that one way that we can have a rubric for every possible mind is to focus on the one thing they all have in common. What do they have in common? is the scope of the goals that they can pursue, the size of the goals. So literally, if all you care about in the sense of being able to expend energy to manage, if all you care about is your current local sugar concentration, then you're probably a yeast or a bacterium. If you can manage to care about something that is going to happen in the next uh, couple of uh, days, or maybe uh, some memory going backwards, and you sort of track an area of, of, of hundreds of feet, you might be a dog or a cat, you know, you have that, that, but you, you will never be able to have goals that are three months later in the next uh, town over, right? It's impossible. You, you can't get a dog to care about that. And if you care about the state of the financial markets a uh, hundred years from now, you're probably a human, right? And if you are literally able to care about all of the beings on the planet in the, um, in the linear range, the way that we can't, right? We're not capable of linearly caring about that, that many individuals. But if you're able to, then you're some sort of more than human, you know, some sort of Buddha-like creature that, that has this like massive, massive cognitive light cone that's actually able to have goals that are that big, right? So one thing about that continuum of, of goal size is that 
if you have a certain level of sophistication, there's a new level that you reach to, which is, which is kind of a, an interesting meta level where you can say, my goal is to expand the size of my goal, right? Whereas before, you, you know, before that, you were just a creature that could pursue certain size goals. But if you make that commitment to expanding your own consciousness, you might make a goal of expanding your own. And then, and then there's a kind of feedback loop and, you, and it's interesting to ask, okay, what happens then, right? Once you've gotten to that point where you can actually commit to expanding your own goal space, then, then what happens, right? And, and that doesn't necessarily guarantee benevolence because uh, you know, negative goals can be very large as well. But there's there's a lot to say so about that. So so I think so I think it's 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 th this idea of of committing to expand um, your own cognitive light cone is probably powerful in, in this in this whole framework. Beautiful. It's fabulous. It's exactly actually where I was trying to go, and I call it the expansion of the sense of self. So as you said, if yourself is you know your sugar, it's then you're a yeast or you're a bacterium or whatever. If yourself expands to include everything, including the environment, then you are a higher being. And I see this as even the purpose of evolution, the ultimate goal that is a hidden goal, that we actually expand ourselves. And when we expand ourselves to include everything, everyone, and every aspect of uh, reality, which in essence is true. It's not just an imagination or a goal to put and a, or a utilitarian kind of philosophy in order to make life better. But the paradigm that I present that comes also from ancient knowledge, including Buddhism, Vedanta, and other values is that actually the ultimate reality, which is the field of pure being, is the self of everything and everyone. And that is something we don't know, that we experience only minimally in certain stages of evolution for, as you beautifully explained, for the bacterium, for the dog, for the human, for the higher human and the higher being. Then when the self expands and knows itself to be everything, then the goal is so universal then ultimately the performance, the achievements, the decision-making, the activity is on the highest possible level, which accommodates everything that is existing. And so your beautiful examples of cooperation and collective intelligence has an application even in our program because we teach transcendental meditation and there is a program for what we call collective consciousness and to raise collective consciousness so that there is a unifying factor that brings society at a higher level of consciousness and understanding of the self as being the self of everything and everyone and ultimately leading to reduction in crime and reduction in accidents of the road. This is another topic, which is our experiments in people who practice these technologies of consciousness. So when we raise individual consciousness, we are raising collective consciousness. And what we have seen experientially, experimentally, is the transformation and decision-making in society. But that's, of course, a topic that is something to think about. But from my perspective, it's also very empirical and it really applies very well to your findings on the level of cells and collection of cells, 
but extending it to collection of humans that have certain level of consciousness of who they are and what is important for them, but that we can raise to include more and more and more and more, and that could be the solution, or to my perspective, is the solution and is the only solution to solve the problems of society and life on Earth and conflict between nations and the climate and also, you know, artificial intelligence, which we don't talk about, which would be what would be the self of the artificial intelligence that is being created and the general artificial intelligence. Is it going to be their own machine or is it going to include humans? Is it going to include the environment? And so we are at a time where we have to discuss these and make sure when we create intelligent machines that learn and grow, that they have a sense of self that is as expanded as possible. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think this is one of the reasons that it's really important to do work both in synthetic morphology in terms of cells and artificial intelligence is to really understand these scaling dynamics and to really understand how new minds can be made uh, in a way that allows them to, to expand towards life-positive goals. I think that's a, that's a very important uh, research uh, direction. Wonderful. It was very enriching, most interesting, scientifically, empirically, Thank you so and much. great intelligence <laughs> displayed in your work and your ability to see all of this. Would you like to say something at the end of this conversation, of which we are all will be all delighted, all those, the listeners, I'm sure. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for, uh, for, for raising some really profound questions. I very much appreciate what you do. Thanks for having me on and uh, for having this conversation. It's a great pleasure. We look forward to meeting you and congratulate you again on your wonderful work. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.